You are listening to content from Christ Our Hope Anglican Church in Fort Collins, Colorado. For more information, you can find us on the web at ChristOurHopeAnglican.org. And now, here's today's message. I love fly fishing. It's a great thing about living in this part of the country, right? Just do things like that. Uh, and as every fisherman could tell you, or, or, tell, or, or extrapolate to you, that, that some days are just amazing, you know? It's always good to be up there, but some days stand out. I remember one day like that when I was a teenager up on the pooter, and it wasn't like I was on, you know, some famous water in the country where I'm catching 20-something, fish left and right. It was just a normal day on my normal river, but um, I just remember that stretch like it was yesterday. I, just, I remember the deep pools behind the boulders. The water level was perfect for the time of year I was fishing. The sun was glittering through the water, and uh, the, the gold bead head on my, my nymph under the water, I could just, it was catching the light. I could see fish taking almost every take, even under the water. It was so clear. It was such a lucid uh, day and experience, and and I bet if I went and fished that same stretch now, I remember that stretch, uh, um, I, I would feel like a teenager again. I'd feel like I was right there uh, reliving that day. And I could imagine also that if it wasn't going well, that I probably would not give up on that stretch. That I would not think, oh, this, this river doesn't have fish. I'll never catch another fish here again. Because I, I, would, I would know that day as a teenager. It would be present for me. And what it would do is it would bring expectation. And as any fly fisherman can tell you, continual expectation brings a focus to the present moment. It brings a framing to the present moment that leaves you ready for the take, ready for the explosion of life, ready for the gift that the present has waiting for you. And you don't have to be a fisherman. This goes in every area of life. Memory sparking expectation to frame the present moment. Think of your relationships. Think of your closest relationships, a marriage, a friendship, a relationship with parents, with children. The power of even just one good memory in that relationship. You know, when you're in the relational muck and you feel a million miles away from each other and you, you're tempted to think, this is, this is reality. This is how it will be. This, will be this, will, this is how it has always been. This is how it always will be. And and then you say, no, remember, remember that walk on that getaway we had? Remember that, that intimacy we felt when we comforted our sick daughter when she's throwing up for the first time in the middle of the night as a two-year-old, and we're cleaning up throw-up, and we're smiling in bed afterwards together, exhausted at 3 a.m., because we're, we're remembering what she said and her sweet words. And No, this, is, this muck is not the core of our relationship. This is not all we've known. We remember. We remember. And our glorious psalm for today Psalm 85 starts with a memory. It starts with a confident memory of God's past goodness and mercy to his people. And it clarifies the direction of the rest of the psalm. Verses 1 through 3 and say, Lord, you were favorable to your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all their sin. You withdrew all your wrath. You turned from your hot anger. We see the scriptures full of remembrance for God's activity in the past. We see the scriptures 
full of commands to do this remembering. We, we see the scriptures full of people begging to remember what he's already done. We know the power of even one good memory. A good memory is one that is real, one that is framed according to what is ultimately real. Father Jeremy in this series has repeatedly told us how vital the framing of our stories is. And as a literature teacher, I say amen to that. The framing of our stories is vital. And the scriptures frame their stories and our stories according to what is real. He who is the truth. That wasn't just a pharaoh who got sick of the griping and problems of an enslaved people and let them go so he could move on. That was a pharaoh vanquished by the love and plan and commitment of the God above all gods, the king above all kings, a king delivering on his promises to his people. That wasn't just a lucky battle where the stronger side got confused, got in their own way, ended up losing. That was a battle where God fought for his people and delivered on his promises. That wasn't just a kind-hearted Persian king who wanted to get foreigners out of Babylon and back to their own land. That was a God who never gives up on his people, who spoke through his prophets generations before about a return to the land and who then miraculously delivered on those promises and brought a remnant of people out of exile and back into the promised land. That, that wasn't a girl pregnant out of wedlock, poor and desperate, and lucky her betrothed hit her and took care of her to help her save face in the community. No, that was the Blessed Virgin, buried in her flesh, the very creator of all flesh, the Logos of God, the second person of the Trinity become flesh to fulfill and secure all promises. That's not a good man being unjustly executed on a cross because he got up, caught up in political and cultural and religious forces outside of his control. No, that's the God-man voluntarily trampling down death by death. That is the victory of love, the victory of God. That is the hub of all reality's turning. That is not a rotting corpse, desperately in need of embalming spices and oils the minute the Sabbath ends. That's the incorruptible Lord of the Sabbath, waiting to rise, proclaiming victory in Hades, making all things new, letting his indestructible life invade all creation until one day all bodies rise like his own, with no more dying, no more chaotic sea, no more tears. But most people see the first version the falsely framed, seemingly obvious version, the version of the realist, but not the version that is real. We need to learn the true framing of the story of the world and for our own story, or we may start in the pain of this psalm's verse 4 rather than this psalm's memory of verse 1. And if we don't see the true framing of our story, we might see the pain that's in this psalm that's in the Amos reading today, as the end rather than the means to the end our memory frames and makes present, eternally present. It is an act of faith from this psalmist, an act of faith, a grounding in a correctly framed reality for the psalmist to start with this memory because he and his people are not currently experiencing this favor and restoration and forgiveness and covering. They are not currently exhilarated by fish after fish pulled from crystal waters. They are not currently laughing and crying and breathing as one with their loved one, as it were. They're getting skunked, and they're sloughing through relational muck. Let's read verse 4 through 6. Restore us again, O God of our salvation, and put away your indignation toward us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again, that your people may rejoice in you? 
He and his people are experiencing God's indignation. They're experiencing his anger. And it feels like it's been their experience of God for a while. Will you prolong your anger to all generations? He cries. It's, it's felt this way for so long. Will it always be like this? How many of you have that same question in your heart this morning? How long will, will you prolong your anger forever? And how does this even work? Aren't these God's people? The anger of God is difficult to process. It's been twisted by many through the centuries. Because we tend to cast God in our own image. And we forget he is love. Always love. At his core and from his core. So what's going on with God's people in the psalm right now? Well, their own folly has turned their hearts from the sun. The light still shines their direction, but they can't receive it. The love still pours out for them. Their God is still their covenant God, and they're still his covenant people. The hesed of God, his covenantal love we've reveled in throughout this series, is still present. But it's currently being expressed and experienced as anger, anger, as heat, as indignation, as distance, as silence, as pain. They're not being allowed to stay comfortable in their current deformities and dirt. Praise God for that. They're not being left alone. They're remembering the heat of God's past loving restoration, and they're experiencing the heat of God's current indignation, and that past and present loving heat is getting our psalmist moving. It is getting our psalmist praying and crying out, and our psalmist finds himself in the depths. And this is where the whole series started. Our very first Sunday of Ordinary Time, first Sunday after Pentecost, started in Psalm 130. And it started in the depths. Out of the depths I cried to you, O Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ear be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. This is the normal Christian life. It begins with a need to cry out. We remember God's answers for us in the past, for us and for billions before us. We then cry out. God answers with the restoration of himself. We then see even more of our needs and we cry out again. Or we forget and fall away and find ourselves in the muck, longing for the pods the pigs are eating, until we finally remember the goodness of our Father's house, and we return. And what do we find? A Father waiting to hoist his robes and run without dignity to meet us at the edge of the property. This is what he does. This is who he is. He restores. It's who he is. Can you imagine that? Chip and Joanna Gaines from the Fixer Upper Show finding some like Waco, Texas property that's still standing, has potential, good area, and saying, we're not really into the whole renovation thing. Can you point me to the nearest new build? I mean, that, you can't even imagine that episode, right? Because renovation is what they do. It's wired into them. And can you imagine God looking at one of his own image bearers? Someone he fearfully and wonderfully made, cell by cell, neuron by neuron, and saying, nope, no hope for this one. No love here. Too messed up. One too many times. He made his bed, now he can lie in it. Of course not. Hope is what he brings. Love is who he is. This is what he does. This is who he is. He restores. His identity as the great restorer drives this psalm. It shapes the psalmist's desire. His desperation in the midst of the pain. And you might be feeling desperate this morning. Desperate because you're hungry for God. Desperate because you feel no hunger for God. Desperate because of your sin. Desperate because of others' sin. Desperate because of life's normal and unbearable grind. Desperate because life never seems to get normal. Every scriptural story I've mentioned today started in desperation. 
Desperation from uncontrollable circumstances. Desperation from one's own sin. Desperation from oppression, both without and within. But we remember with the psalmist. We remember with the psalmist. This is the place where God does his thing. He goes into the desperation and he flips the script. Others shy away from the mother without a husband. God exalts her. Others shy away from the prostitute. God receives her offering and her tears and lifts her up. Others shy away from death, dominated by the fear of death. God uses death itself to trample death. He conquers death through death. He crawls into the belly of the beast to kill the beast from the inside. If we believe in the cross and the empty tomb, we believe in a God who flips the script, a God who requires humility for glorification, a God who requires death for life, a God who sets a glorious table, but he sets it for the hungry, and he sets it right in the presence of enemies. We must remember this, or we will be incapacitated by discouragement and despair when our present circumstances feel unfair, when our present sins seem too entrenched, when we find ourselves on our knees during the time of confession today, confessing the same things as last week, when we find ourselves in the depths, remember, dear ones, remember. For our turning will be according to our remembering. The psalmist's remembering sparks his request to God. In verse 7, he moves from haunting questions to confident requests. Show us your steadfast love. That's, that's that Hebrew word, hesed. And grant us your salvation. He wants to hear God's voice, and he's confident what that voice will speak. He will speak peace to his people, to his saints. But then he says, but let them not turn back to folly. Isn't it tragic and scary? We can experience God's deliverance and still want to turn back to Egypt. The psalm is full of turning turning to God and turning away. And such is the battle of our life. It's a battle for repentance. It's a battle for the right turning. I used to think repentance is what you did at the start of the Christian life, maybe after you sinned. But I see now why the scriptures speak so much of repentance and turning, why the saints of the church are always talking about this life as a life of repentance. For turning to God is the call in each present moment. It is the Christian life. I've used the word moment a lot today. The Greek has two main words for time. Chronos and kairos. Now, chronos is linear ticking time. It's often what we think of as time. But kairos is the appointed time, the time of the kingdom. The start of our liturgy today, where we respond with blessed be the kingdom, is a call to see our chronos transformed into kairos. Repentance is when we go through linear ticking time, that chronos, and turn to our ever-present God, waiting for us, waiting to usher us into eternity. Blessed be the kingdom. The liturgy is a rising up into the kingdom. What's already there, what's real? A time outside of time. Kairos. No wonder this life is so epic. No wonder we must learn the correct framing of our stories and remind ourselves and each other every single day. We are immortal. And we're surrounded by immortals. And each of us are being eternally shaped by our turning. The stakes are infinitely high for everyone in this room. And everyone in the next room. And look around the room. I know speakers say that. But actually, look around the room. 
<laughs> Think of the glory, the life, the love offered to each of us through the incarnate Christ and his sharing of the life and love of the Holy Trinity with us. Oh, how glorious to think of each other in communion with that divine life forever, and how terrible to think of turning back to our folly. C.S. Lewis was indeed being real when he wrote his famous quote, It's a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses. To remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you'd be strongly tempted to worship, or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. All day long, we are in some degree helping each other to one or other of these destinations. He keeps saying is that it is in the light of these overwhelming possibilities. It is with the awe and circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all our dealings with one another. All friendships, all loves, all play, all politics. There are no ordinary people. You've never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilization, these are mortal. And their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. End quote. We must remember today. We must repent we must return, respond and return to the time of the kingdom. We must see our chronos transformed into kairos, and there we find a near salvation. Love that word in this psalm. Salvation is near. We find the present reality ushered in by the incarnate Christ, and we finish with verse 9 through 13, and it's quite the finish. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. Steadfast love and faithfulness meet, Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Faithfulness springs up from the ground, and righteousness looks down from the sky. Yes, the Lord will give what is good, and our land will yield its increase. Righteousness will go before him and make his footsteps away. We remember and turn and find the same God pouring out the same love. We find glory dwelling in the land. We find God's hesed and faithfulness meeting. We find the tension of his righteousness and his peace, and they kiss each other at the cross. And we see that cruciform shape at the center of all reality. We see faithfulness and righteousness surrounding us, haunting us, bubbling up from the ground, looking down from the sky. The pulsing life at the end of this psalm is overwhelming. It is the result of the righteous one invading his own creation. You see the language of like St. John the Forerunner at the end, footsteps, preparing a way, prepare ye the way of the Lord. Well, St. John the Forerunner called out for repentance, a preparing for the Lord's footsteps. Footsteps, could God's salvation really be so near? And then here comes the second person of the Trinity, and he enters the waters with St. John, and he's submerged, and he fulfills all righteousness, and then he blesses the waters, and he emerges to the loving proclamation of the Father, and the anointing of the Spirit, and the Holy Trinity, in that moment of Kairos, right here in our world, in a normal little river in Palestine, he's come, his footsteps have trod our earth, and trodden our enemies, and now, today, we remember. And when we leave this place, we must keep remembering. When we go through our moments of chronos, we must see each, each as an invitation to remember and turn. My spiritual father met with me the other day, and he talked through my frustrations with my own spiritual apathy, distractions, and he said, you must keep watch. He said, turning to God is like catching a tiger. He isn't tame. 
isn't just always a cat that's just going to crawl up in your lap. You must wait, turn, watch, snatch at the present moment. Grab it, take it up, turn, engage. Find his face is already turned to you, waiting to invade further and deeper and transform. In our desperation, we don't need to fixate on our circumstances, our own darkness. We don't conquer darkness that way. The psalm shows us that. St. Porfirios of recent times said, quote, when you're in a very dark room, don't fight the darkness in order to banish it. Open the windows to the light. In other words, give it over to the love of Christ. And then without any effort, the darkness leaves. When an evil thought comes to mind, he says, or a sad thought, fear or temptation overwhelms you, do not attempt to fight it in an attempt to banish it. Open your hands to the love of Christ. And he will take you in his embrace, and all these things will vanish of their own accord. When the garden of your soul is filled with thorns or passions, do not attempt to uproot them. By doing this, it will keep you constantly traumatized and contaminated by your dealing with them. Give all your power over to the flowers of your soul. Water them, and then the thorns will wilt away on their own. And the best flower, to finish the saying, is your love for Christ. If you water and cultivate it, the thorns will wilt away. End quote. Water your love for Christ. Catch the tiger hunting you, haunting you. He waits. We remember and know this is true. We remember and turn to what is real. We turn. And the whole service is full of turnings. Turn to the person. We turn to the gospel. We turn now to his altar, and to what is real. His real once-for-all sacrifice, his real food and drink, his real gift of himself in this present moment. We turn, and may we ever turn to the one faithful at all times and in every place, the God of Hesed, the God who restores now and forever into the ages of ages. Amen. This sermon is an audio ministry from Christ Our Hope Anglican Church in Fort Collins, Colorado. If you are in the area and would like to learn more about how you can worship with us in person or online, please visit us on the web at www.christourhopeanglican.org.